Praise the Lord. Father God, thank you for another opportunity, Lord, to come into your house and to speak your word. And we pray, God, that we could sit at your feet and just reap, oh God, the words that you would give to us into our heart. And we'll thank you and give you glory and honor and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to talk to you about the truth about self-image. We hear a lot about uh, self-image and self-esteem. But I think the interesting from the word of God that God would uh, help us to understand what true self-image is. In the book of Genesis, and this will be a two-part series, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 16, and God made two great lights, the great light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And uh, in verse 16 in the easy translation, it says, God made two big lights, the larger to take charge of day and the smaller to be in charge of night. And he made the stars. Now, why is Genesis 1.16 important? The uh, context from universe today, it's uh, some kind of... uh, place where you can go to find out history about astronomy, says this, the sun and the moon are two big lights. The light coming from the moon is an illusion. It's an illusion. You're actually seeing the reflected light from the sun bouncing off the moon, which acts as a mirror. The amount of light from the moon depends on the point of its orbit. You get that? It's very interesting. So you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. What was the name of this again? I'm sorry. Of what? The name of what we're calling it tonight. What is the truth about self-image? I'm sorry. That's okay. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image. That's a very important word. After our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So what was God saying here? God said, I'm going to make Adam and Eve male and female, to have dominion. It's the authority of the believer. And the word dominion in Hebrew means to tread down, to subjugate, to prevail against, to reign against and rule over. So right there, God was establishing the authority of Adam and Eve in the garden. And he said we would make man in our own image, in the image of God. And the word make means to accomplish. God wanted to accomplish something when he created Adam and Eve. He wanted to produce something. And so when you look at the word image, in Hebrew it means a phantom, an illusion. You see one, you see the other. Hold on to that thought. It's a resemblance. 
It's a representative figure reflecting and mirroring God. So when the world sees us, they should see God in us. Because we mirror his light. Now hold on. It says in the image and likeness, okay, after our image and likeness. And likeness, again, is resemblance to resemble, and it's a replica. So here we have the sun and the moon. And as we said, you're actually seeing reflected light from the sun bouncing off the moon, which acts as a mirror. Now, God had something in mind here. He wanted Adam and Eve to be like him. Not God's, but to reflect his image. Because they were made in the image of God. All right. So he says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So when God says he formed man, in the Hebrew it means to mold or to fashion. So God did something special. He didn't just throw a bunch of dry earth together, which is what the word dust means in Hebrew. He didn't just say, well, I'm going to just throw some dry earth together. Somehow God took dry earth, okay, and somehow he created a man and molded a man. I have no idea how he did that. It's supernatural. I have no idea how God created a heart, lungs, kidneys, and everything else that goes within one human being out of dust, out of dry earth. And then God, okay, breathed into his nostrils. So here you have Adam, who's going to become a replica of God. He's going to resemble God. He's going to mirror the light of God. And he's just dust. He's dry earth. And God gets down and breathes into him. And the word in Hebrew to breathe means to breathe or to blow. But what God was doing was he was transferring divine inspiration into the intellect of Adam, into the soul of Adam, and into the spirit of Adam, so Adam would have the mind of God. Hmm. That's a pretty heavy concept right there. God did something supernatural. You see, man has a body, soul, and spirit. Adam had a body, soul, and spirit. But when God breathed it into his nostrils, he breathed in the spirit of the living God into Adam. And Adam became... The Bible says a living soul, okay? And the breath of, uh, and, and then the Bible says, uh, and, and breathe it into his nostrils, the breath of life, which was the breath of God or the spirit of God, capital S. And the Bible says that Adam became a living soul, which means he was quickened. That word is used in the New Testament about we're quickened by the word of God. The word of God touches our intellect, touches our soul, touches our spirit, like no other word. It's the, the, the word of God is a living gospel. And supernaturally, it could do anything it wants in your life. So, as Christians, and we'll get into the born-again experience on how Adam and Eve lost the image of God, they lost it. And we'll get into the born-again experience in a moment, how we can regain back the image of God, but as Christians, God has breathed into our lives, okay, his divine spirit and inspiration, okay? 
In 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul said, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. The Bible says in Philippians 2.5, let this mind, what mind? The mind of Christ be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Hmm. You mean to tell me I can think thoughts the way God wants me to think those thoughts? Absolutely. When God breathes into us and our continual journey with the Lord as we grow in the Lord and he continues to breathe his divine inspiration into us, we grow, we mature. We get the thoughts of God. And as I taught last week, which was a very, very important lesson, very important, your thoughts versus God's thoughts. And why do people get messed up? It's simply because they use their thoughts instead of God's thoughts. When God is saying, use my thoughts and life will be much easier. So we go back to Genesis 2.15. And the Lord God took the man, took Adam, and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Now, where was Adam before being placed in the garden? We don't really know. The Bible really isn't clear on that. Okay? But it was outside the garden. Because the Bible specifically says, and the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden, saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in that day thou eatest therefore thereof thou shalt surely die. So God creates this man out of dust, dry earth, breathes breath into his nostrils, he becomes a living soul, and now he takes him. The Bible says that he took the man, which means he laid hold of him. In Hebrew, it means to take by the hand. It means actually to marry. To marry. It means to take a wife, to lead, and to, and to order and direct. Now, when you look at it in the broad scope of Christ being the husband, we are the wife, that he's betrothed to. The marriage supper of the Lamb will consecrate the marriage of us to him as the husband. You understand that? Amen. And right there in the Garden of Eden, God was saying, I'm married to you, Adam. We're together. You've been made in my image. We're together. You're my son. I'm your father. Okay? I don't think Adam quite understood that. Because if he did, he wouldn't have done what he did with Eve and messed all that up. So the Bible says that he took the man and then put him, put him into the garden. What does it mean to put into the garden? To cause to rest in peace and recreation. That's what the Hebrew is saying to us. God put Adam into the garden to rest for recreation, to settle down, to remain and make quiet. So God was creating a sanctuary within the Garden of Eden. And that sanctuary is something that we should try to duplicate in our homes and in our church. It should be a place where people could come to find quiet, to find peace, to find the joy of the Lord, okay? And to find order, okay? Organization. God is a God of order. God is a God of organization, okay? And then it says, what did God put him in the Garden of Eden to do? To dress it 
and to keep it. What does it mean to dress it? It means in Hebrew to work and serve God. Okay? That's why Adam was put in the garden. To work and serve God. To make oneself a servant. How many times in the New Testament did Paul say, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? He was a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So God is saying to Adam, okay, you're going to become a servant. You're going to serve. Okay? You're going to serve God and you're going to serve Eve. Okay? The word dress means, okay, to, uh, to make oneself a servant. And you, when you look at what God was saying here, to dress it and to keep the garden, gardening was the first occupation of man. Gardening was the first occupation of man. So when you dig in the dirt and you plant some flowers and you plant some vegetables and seeds... You're doing what God ordered Adam to do. Now, some people would say, well, why would God want Adam to do this stuff in the Garden of Eden? Wasn't it perfect? Absolutely. But God didn't create man to be idle. God didn't create man to be lazy. God didn't create man to just to sit around and do nothing. That's not why he created him. And he created him, okay, to be a gardener. And Adam had to maintain the different plants and vegetables for recreation and pleasure. Now, some people don't understand the part of recreation when you're gardening, okay? Because when you're a real gardener, gardening is not a chore or toilsome. It's fun to see things grow, to watch things come from the ground from nothing, to plant the seed and think, wow, this is going to come up you know, in a, in a couple of weeks and it's going to bring fruit, okay? And it's fun. For some people, they say, well, you know what? It's easier for me to go down to Wegmans and buy tomatoes. That's true. You could do that. You can go buy cucumbers. You could buy anything. That's okay. Okay? And when you go down there, it's not so much fun. Because shopping and going to the store is actually a pain in the neck. Especially when you see the prices. It's so nice when you're going to cook something in your house and you want a fresh tomato and you walk up to the garden and you take one right off the vine and you say thank you Lord or a fresh cucumber or fresh onions or corn and it's from your garden that you were able to dress and keep with your hands that God gave you the ability the wisdom the knowledge and the fun to see something grow we should teach our children how to garden we should teach our children how things grow we should teach our children how things are produced. Because you know what? As you look in the world today in America, there's probably more gardens today that are being planted in America than at any other time in the history of our country. Why? Because people who are smart see the handwriting on the wall. They're not dumb. Okay? So when you go to the store and you go to the vegetable department and you come out with some tomatoes and cucumbers and different things, and then they ring up the price on the register, you say, what did I actually buy here? Why is that so much money? When you can actually go to your garden and plant something and pick it out and say, that's something that God helped me to create, that God helped me to grow and dress my garden. So the Bible says, basically, God made man not to be idle. As a matter of fact, Paul reminded the church at Thessalonica when he said in uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, for even when we were with you, this we commanded you, 
that if any would not work, neither should he eat. That's the word. That's the word of God. And of course, we see in America where there's not many people that really want to work anymore. Not many people that want to really go out there and, you know, uh, make a living and, and, and do the right thing. And they want to just have the government to take care of them and feed them and so on. And they become dependent upon the government and they say Uncle Sam. And I always reminded the uh, clients that I work with, I said, I want to ask you guys a question. You're in a 90-day program. And I said, uh, if you were out in the rehab somewhere, it would probably cost you $1,000 a day. And I know none of you have $90,000 to go to a rehab privately. Who do you think is paying for this? Oh, Uncle Sam. I said, you know who Uncle Sam is? Uncle Sam is people like myself and all the people that work in America that are helping to fund you and pay the bill to get you clean and sober. That's who Uncle Sam is. Uncle Sam has a face. Uncle Sam drives to work every day. Uncle Sam works hard to help you get to the place where you can graduate and go home and not kill yourself over an overdose. That's who Uncle Sam is. Or Aunt Sally, whoever you want to call. Okay? That's who we are. We're called the taxpayers. And this isn't free. Someone's paying for it. You're not. We are. And we're doing this because we want to help you. So don't think that there's some strange Uncle Sam somewhere in the hills that's writing checks and sending money to the government to fund your rehab, because that's not true. And I made them understand that, and they, they got a better grasp on why they were there and who was paying for it. It wasn't for free. It's not a freebie, okay? Yes, we want to help you. That's why we work here, okay? And, of course, you know, their response is, well, you, that's your job. Yeah, that is my job, and it's a job that I love doing. And I do. And not everybody's cut out to be this kind of a, have this kind of a job in a prison. Not everybody wants to work in a prison. But we choose to. And why do we? So we can help you become better human beings so you don't break into my home and I have to shoot you. That's what I would tell them. And they, they understood that. They got it very clear in their heads. I said, because if you come to my home, I'm going to shoot you. That's just the way it's going to be. Because you're not going to hurt me or my family. And take what I've worked real hard for in my whole life. So I have a gun waiting for you if you choose to do that and I'll just drag in and then I'll, well, try to rob me. I'd rather not do that. We're here to help you. We're not here to fight with you. We're not here to strain with you, to strive with you. We're here to help you. And a lot of them received the help. A lot of them said thank you. Others thought we owed them something. And we don't owe you nothing, okay? We don't owe you anything. Because we come to work, do our 40 hours a week to help you so that you don't become idle when you go back out there. So God said to Adam, not only to dress the garden, but to keep it. What does that mean? The word keep it means to hedge about as with thorns, okay? To guard the garden, to protect it, to attend to it, to beware of the garden, to take heed of the garden where you're living. Keep yourself Observe, preserve this garden. From what? Well, there was an enemy. Because God gave him a choice. He said, if you eat of that tree, you'll surely die. Well, who was going to entice him to eat of that tree? It was going to be Satan. Okay? And there were animals in the garden, obviously. And he had to tend to those animals so that they didn't step on his, their flowers and step on vegetable plants and so on, Adam 
had a job to do, okay? Adam had work to do for God as he served God, as he worshiped God, as he communed with God. And he had a relationship with Eve, okay, in that garden to take care of her, to observe her, to protect her. But he failed, which a lot of men do. They fail. They fail to protect their wives. They fail to protect their homes. They fail to protect their children. And it's sad. And how do they fail? By not being spiritual. By not being spiritual. Listen, you could be the greatest guy in the whole world, go to work your whole life, make a great living, drive a big car, have a beautiful home, have the indoor, the out, the indoor swimming pool and all that, and say, I'm a good guy. Okay, maybe you're a good guy, but you're not a spiritual guy. Because it's the spirit in you that's going to put a hedge of thorns around your house and where you live and around your family. When you're absent spiritually, here's what you're doing. You're giving an invitation to the enemy to come in and do whatever he wants to do. You're giving him a legal right because you're not taking dominion over what God gave you in your garden. See, everybody's got a garden. I got a garden. You got a garden. I'm not talking about a vegetable garden now. Everyone has a garden where they live. Everyone is responsible for where they live. Everyone has, is, is a steward over what they have. Okay, you lock your doors at night. Why? You lock your car. You watch what you do with your pocketbook or your wallet. You're very mindful of that. Why? Because God is saying, protect what you have, what I've given to you. We don't own anything. It's all borrowed. We're just stewards of what God, we're supposed to be just good managers. And God was saying to Adam, be a good manager. God was telling Adam like his eternal life would be in jeopardy if he and Eve, okay, ate from the tree. Guard yourself. Protect it. Put a hedge of thorns around you guys, okay? And their reflection and mirroring God would be blocked and disappear as they would experience sinful darkness. And this is an important sentence here. When Adam decided and Eve decided to eat of that tree, the reflection and the mirroring of God was blocked. Blocked. Eclipse. Darkness. Came. And the mirror, mirroring of God and the light of God disappeared and they experienced sinful darkness. It was the most tragic moment actually in the history of the church because the cataclysmic explosion took place spiritually in the garden. What God created perfect and sinless all of a sudden now was tainted because Adam didn't do what God told him to do. And that's why we have such a problem in America. And the problem in America lies in the fact that men have not been spiritual leaders of their homes. They've left the enemy to come in and run astray in their home. And the enemy works in very seductive ways. Very seductive ways. Just like he seduced... Eve, he'll seduce a woman. Just like Adam disobeyed God, men will disobey God. We must stay spiritual. We must take into account what God has given to us in our garden to be stewards over. So sin enters the garden, okay? In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22, very interesting verses. And the Lord God said, Behold, this man has become as one of us to know good and evil. 
And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden, sent him forth from the garden. Listen to what it says now. Okay. To till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man. Look at the word drove. I'll talk to you about that in a moment. And placed him in the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So what was God doing here? God said, you disobeyed me. You've lost the light and the mirror of reflection, the image of God upon you and Eve. It's gone. Okay. And now God said, I'm going to drive you from the garden to till the ground from whence he was taken. You're going to become a gardener, but it's going to be a different kind of gardening. It's not going to be fun. You're going to sweat. The mosquitoes are going to bite you. The bees are going to dive bomb you. You're going to get blisters on your hands. You're going to get frustrated. Your plants are going to wilt. Some things aren't going to grow. And you're going to begin to wonder what happened. Now look at the word drove. What does the word drove mean in Hebrew? It means to drive out and drive away. Look at the word drive. You ever see a cattle drive, a Western movie? They push those animals from point A to point B. The word drove means to expel. You've heard people to get expelled from school. It means to cast out. The word actually means divorce in Hebrew. It means to thrust out. Now, Adam lost what was good. And a lot of times in life, people lose what's good, what God wants to give them and what God has given them. But it sounds like he tried to hold on and stay in the Garden of Eden. It sounded like, I'm not leaving. I'm not being dispossessed. I'm not losing my home. (laughs) Oh, yes, you are. And it almost sounds like he had to be dragged out from the garden because he got used to a good thing. He got used to Eve, his relationship. Hey, they were walking around naked. There was no sexual hangups. There was no like cuckoo stuff going on here. They loved one another. There was no shame. There's no guilt, no condemnation. They were both naked. Think about it. Think about that. And now... He's saying, you mean I got to leave this? Yeah, you got to leave it. And God had to drive him out because it sounds like he tried to hold on and stay. God had to drive him out and self-image took over in the Garden of Eden when sin took place. Man's self-image. Not God's. You see, the Bible says that man was made in the image and likeness of God. That was the created man, Adam. But Adam lost that image. And I'll show you what what God was saying. We work so hard to improve self-image and self-esteem. How we look, how we feel about ourselves, the impression that we make to other people, we pose. We try to convince people this is who I really am when we're really not that. You know what I'm talking about. It's false. It's fake. But we try so hard to convince other people. And, And what good is that? Who really cares about what other people think anyway? But we have a real problem in society because people want to be people pleasers. 
and, and, they, and they sort of uh, subjugate themselves to peer pressure because I want to be liked. I want everyone to like me. Well, not everyone's going to like you if you follow the gospel. If you follow Jesus, you're going to lose friends. And people say, well, I have friends. Who, who are your friends? Have you spoken the gospel to them? Have you told them about Jesus? Have you told them your heartfelt experience with the Lord? Have you told them what you stand for? I guarantee you, those people that you think may be your friends may look at you in a different light when they find out who you really are. We hide. We hide behind the fig leaf. We hide. Adam tried to hide behind a fig leaf, so to speak. Okay, it didn't work. God knew Adam. He was in the cool of the garden every day in an intimate relationship with Adam, communing with him, communicating with him, talking with him. And then when they sinned, Adam tried to hide, and God said, well, where are you? I hid because I was afraid. Yeah, now you're afraid because you lost the mirroring of God. You lost the light of God. And as a result, now fear is taking place in the earth. And fear is like the number one enemy. If there was a poster in the post office for a wanted, it would be fear. Number one enemy, the imposter that comes to us and produces fear. So we work so hard to improve self-image and self-esteem. People say, I don't think much of myself. A lot of people say that. Perhaps we shouldn't. Perhaps we shouldn't think much of ourselves. So maybe we shouldn't boast about who we are and what we do. First time men meet, first question out of a man's mind, well, what do you do for a living? What do you care? If I was a street cleaner, would that make a difference in your mind? If my job, I wasn't a doctor or a lawyer? Or I was a custodian in a, in a school somewhere? Would that, would that reflect differently in your life about me? Would you think less of me? Would you not invite me to your house anymore? Would I not be part of your life anymore because of my occupation? That's the first thing. Men shake hands. So what do you do for a living? What kind of car do you drive? What do you care? I have a jalopy. It's 2007. What do you have? Oh, I have a Mercedes. That's nice. Glad you have a Mercedes. But does that make a difference in your life about who you really are? Because who you really are is about your character. That's what you really are. How you treat other people. Are you respected? Do people hold you in a good light? Are you a good supervisor at work? Do you take care of your people? Do you care? Are you concerned? Do you have compassion? Mm. Oh, you're not supposed to have that. Because you walk around thinking who you are because you're a suit. You're a suit. And you remind people, do you know who I am? I don't care who you are. It doesn't really make a difference who you are. It makes a difference who I am in Christ. It makes a difference who I know. And I know the God that created all this and who created you. So don't go around bragging about who you are and what you've accomplished. It doesn't make a difference because now you're bragging. Now you're bringing in your self-esteem and your self-image and you're trying to impress me with your wares and your goods. And you know what? You turn me off. Just come down to planet Earth and just be a regular. Amen? Amen. So I feel good about who I am in Christ and what he thinks of me. That's what we have to get to. There has to be an agreement and an, and an alignment with God in order to be in position to fill our purpose in his kingdom. If we're not in position and in alignment with God, we're not going to be able to reflect his light. You got to be in the right orbit. You can't be out of orbit. And a lot of people are out of orbit, to be honest with you. They're out of orbit. 
They're not in sync. They revolve around themselves and not around God. And when you revolve around yourself, you really think you're that really important. Look at me, I'm somebody. But you're really not. And you're living a fake life. You're living actually an illusion. That's what you're living. Okay, you're the moon without the reflection of the sun. You're actually in darkness. And a lot of people have no idea that they're in darkness. So look what happened. Now they're out of the garden. Adam and Eve have now got to get along and they blamed each other. It's this woman you gave me. It was the serpent, blah, blah, blah. The blame game started. And that's really where the blame game starts a lot in marriage, particularly, or in relationships among friends. We blame. It's the accusatory spirit of Satan. And people have not realized that. When people start to go at each other, they make accusations. Well, you said this, you did that, blah, blah, blah. And it's almost like bang, 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 darts, darts, darts. And then the other one retaliates. I got to get one up on you. Remember when you did this? Remember when you said that? Bang, bang, bang. And guess who's in the middle of your garden? It's not God. It's Satan standing right there and he's laughing and he's saying, look at that. I dropped them like a 10 pound bag of potatoes. And now they're accusing one another. Look at them. Look at them. Isn't this comical? And he's laughing because he's got people fighting one another. It's called division and discord. And so when you look at marriage and you counsel people or relationships, okay, it's like a couple comes to you and right away they want to say, you want to know what he's doing? No. Well, what kind of counseling is this? I want to know what you're doing or what you're not doing. And then I want to ask him what he's doing and what he's not doing. Because if we're going to have an accusatory conversation here, it'll amount to nothing. We'll get nowhere. Take responsibility. Be accountable for your behavior. Have you been in sync? Have you said the right thing? Have you been loving? Have you been forgiving? Well, no, don't give me the well. There's no wells on dry land. What's your play in here? Because you can blame him. He's only going to blame you. We'll be here for an hour or two. We'll go home and we'll remain the same. But if we become humble, like we preached on Sunday, very important message. Humility. Esteeming the other better than ourselves. We'll take account for our own behavior. We won't blame the devil. We won't blame our wife. We won't blame our husband. We'll take accountability and say, you know what? I fell short. I really did. And you know, right there, that bondage is broken. Right there, Satan does not have a legal play in your life because you're realizing and taking accountability and responsibility for your behavior. And what has he got left? What is he going to play with? You just diffused him. You took, you took the, the fuse out of the bomb. You, you, you took the bomb that was in the ground and you threw it out and you blew it up and he has nothing to work with now. But what happens in homes? We continue, we continue, we continue. We slam doors, we bang this, we go out, we're mad. We, go, we get in our cars, we, we drive a thousand miles. We go, we, we go eat, we go drink, we go do. And the devil's saying, he got him on the run now. Got her on the run now. We depress people, he depresses people, oppresses people. And he gets you to fight. 
And that's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. And what happened here? And Adam knew his wife, Eve, in Genesis 4 and 1, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. Now, why did she say that? Maybe because Adam wasn't fulfilling her anymore? Maybe he wasn't all that he was used to be in the Garden of Eden? Now I got someone else to love? I got someone else to cherish? I got someone else to hold? And that's why I think a lot of men become mama's boys. Because their relationship with the father, the husband, becomes sort of stale. And now I give birth to this boy, and this boy's going to love me. It's going to breastfeed. He's going to be part of my life. And the husband becomes the third party. Have you ever noticed that when a woman gives birth to a baby, the husband's in the corner somewhere, the forgotten guy, the lost child? Because up until that point of the firstborn, he's been the child. He's gotten all the attention. But now the, the baby's come. And, and this baby that's eight pounds or whatever is getting all the attention. And mom is getting all the attention. And she should. And the baby should. But here's this guy in the corner. And I, and I try to caution people when they're having at least their first child and second, third, or whatever. Don't forget the dad. He had a real important play in this. He had a really important part in this. Okay, and, and you can't put him out there. He, he's part of this. You got, you got to incorporate everything here. And when you don't, you alienate him. He feels rejected. He feels like, who the heck am I? Everybody's coming here. It's like, yeah, hey, mom is doing the baby. Let me see the baby. Okay, that's wonderful. Dad has no problem with that. But now you're displacing him, putting him in the corner. That's not a good thing. So here, I'm looking at this, and all of a sudden, he, a man has been born, a baby, okay? Okay? A mortal, and thus differing from the more dignified Adam who made, who was made in the image and likeness of God. Now, now we have a baby that mom is going to take all of her attention to. And I kind of sort of read into this that, you know what? She said, I got a man now. <laughs> you, got, you got, it's a baby. I've gotten a man from the Lord. What do you mean a man? It's a baby. But now the way I'm looking at it is, Adam, you're not that important. You're really a pain in the neck. You blew it. You lost our house, whatever. You didn't, you didn't protect me, blah, whatever it was, whatever they are. And now the arguments start. Because the argument started in the garden when they sinned. Can you imagine the arguments that took place outside the garden? Mm. Just look in the American family. Look at the divorces. There's more divorces in the Christian churches than there are in the secular world now. We, we, we should not be proud of this. Okay? So man was now produced in the image and likeness of his sinful parents. Not in the image and likeness of God. He was being reproduced, produced in the image and likeness of his sinful parents. Cain failed as he was made in the image and likeness of Adam and Eve. This did not exist before Adam and Eve sinned as they were made in the image and likeness of God. You understand the difference and you have to get the difference here. You were born from sinful parents. I was born from sinful parents. My parents were not born in the image and likeness of God. Neither were yours. And neither was I. Or my wife, who gave birth to children that had the sin nature. You understand that? There's a big difference. Sinful parents are not mirroring the light of God. We're the dark moon with no light. We're not orbiting correctly to receive the light of God. So God is saying this. 
What blocks us from being in his image and in his likeness? What's the blocks? The blocks hinder God from positioning us for duty. We have, people have blocks. Haven't you asked, said to yourself, why don't you get it? Why don't you understand that God loves you? Why don't you understand that God's light wants to come in you? Haven't you said that to people? Of course. Doesn't it frustrate you? And you say, what's blocking you? What is the problem? What is the issue? What is it? Can you, can you identify it? Can you pinpoint it? Can you write it on a piece of paper? These blocks hinder God from positioning us for duty. A soldier can't shoot unless we teach him how to use a gun. He'll never be in position unless he's taught how to use a gun. What needs to happen to put him in position where he can shoot a gun? He has to learn and be taught to reflect and mirror the weapons training officer. You don't just give him a gun. He watches. He looks. He mimics. He imitates. And then after he passes all of those tests, he's given a gun to mirror what the training officer taught him. Now he's doing mirroring what the training officer did by shooting at the target. You understand that? Now he's in position to be a soldier, okay? How about sinful and fallen man? Sinful and fallen man is out of position. He's out of position. Something supernatural must take place to eliminate the blocks that keep the light of God out. Because the mind is blinded. That's why we get so frustrated because we understand we have received the light, but we get frustrated with other people and we pull our hair out that we have left and say, why don't you get it, man? What's the block? What's the problem? What is so important in your life that you just can't submit yourself to God and receive his full light? So there's a way back. God orchestrated this whole thing. In the garden, he killed an animal because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And he put that skin upon Adam and Eve to cover them, to cover them by the blood. It was just a covering. But Jesus came, not just to cover, but to take away our sins. He was the perfect lamb of God. And we waited. We waited for the perfect lamb to come. John said he's coming. The prophet said he was coming. Isaiah said, Emmanuel will be with us. He'll come. And he came. And the Bible says in John 1 and 12, the way back. How do we become in the, made again into the image and likeness of God? It says in John 1 and 12, but as many as received him, you've received him. You've received him. You've said yes. To them gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. Now look what it says in verse 13 of John 1 and 13. Which were born not of blood, not as a result of your parents, nor of the will of the flesh, okay? Nor of the will of man, but of God. God breathed into your nostrils his Holy Spirit that activated your body soul, and spirit 
through his Holy Spirit. Because before you were born again, you were just body, soul, and spirit. You were dead. And God breathed life into you by allowing you to receive the Holy Spirit in your body, soul, and spirit. And you became a living soul, mirroring the likeness, the image, and the light of God. You were no longer with a dark moon. You were no longer walking in darkness because Jesus said that those that have the light of life, light will not walk in darkness any longer. It's a marvelous situation. He says in John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, born from your parents is flesh. That which is born of the spirit, capital S, is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. So God is saying there is a way back. There's, there's a way back, so to speak, to the, to the Garden of Eden, so to speak. There's a way back to peace. There's a way back to rest. There's a way back to tranquility. There's a way back to recreation in Christ. There's a way back to serve and worship the Lord. And when people don't have this, they're restless. They look outside of God. They look to make themselves look this way, that way, impress people, have this talk, blah, blah, blah. Look at me. I'm a rapper. Look at me. I got this gangster talk, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to fit in. I'm ghetto. Blah, blah, blah. You know what? You're making a fool of yourself. I, I used to say that to the, the Caucasian clients that I had as females. And we had black girls on the dorm. And I used to watch the Caucasian girls wanting to be like them. I said, honey, you can't imitate them. They have their own culture. You, 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 you act like you talk like them? You act like you get down like them? Act like you're one of them? They're laughing at you. You're a joke. You're humor to them. You're talked about. Because you can't mirror them. Neither can they mirror you. Be safe in your own skin. I used to teach them. Be happy in your own skin. Allow God's light and his image to come into you. And then you'll know who you are. You don't have to put on. You don't, you don't, you don't have to like sort of be on the theater, on the stage to act. Just be your kid. Let God shine through you. And when they see God shine through you, they'll see that light. And then they'll say, hey, what do you have? Hey, I, I want to come to church. That's what used to happen. People that never came to church on that dorm started coming to church. They said, well, how, how come all these women go to church? It was simple. They want what some of these girls have that's genuine. Because they're sick and tired of being sick and tired. And they want to find peace. They want to find rest. They want to find tranquility. They want to find serenity. Without acting. Without playing. Without posing. And so on. And so God says, there is a way back. And so here we are. We're New Testament Christians. We're born again. Okay? And we understand what God is saying here. We understand that when we're born from our parents, we're born in sin. But we don't have to remain that way. We can be born again and be Christians and have the love and the spirit of the living God that we become a living soul once again. If you look at people that don't have the light, if you look at people that play with God, in and out, Christian malaria, fever and a chill, they're miserable. And they're always finding something to substitute their miserable life 
and the emptiness in their heart. And it's, you, it's, you, you see it, you could discern it. And you feel bad for people because they work so hard to improve their self-image. They work so hard to improve their self-esteem. When God's saying, I want to give you that. I want you to be like me. I want you to have my mind, my thoughts, my behaviors. So what does God caution us in the book of Colossians? He says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, If you then be risen with Christ, if you're born again, if you say you have what you have, that you have the light of God, Paul said to the church, he said, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. What does that mean, if you be risen with Christ? The word in the Greek means to raise up together from mortal death to a new and blessed life dedicated to God. You see, when we were born again, God took away death. He took took away that feeling of hopelessness and helplessness, of gloom and doom. And that's exactly what the enemy wants to put back on us in the last day. He wants to put, tell us it's hopeless, it's helpless, it's gloom and doom. You, you have no chance. Jesus isn't coming. He just feeds lies. And people buy it and they give up. And they end up giving up and they end up losing the light of God that God gave them through the born-again experience. Now we have heresy in the pulpit that says, oh, you can't lose your salvation. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You can get out of position. You're not in orbit. You're not circling the Lord. You're circling yourself. And when you begin to circle yourself, you're out of position. You can't shoot straight. You can't think straight. You can't act right. You'll act to impress others and not have the mirroring and the light of God. So the Bible says the word risen means it implies a coherence, a working together. The two who are with each other are intimately connected and goes very much further, which means being in the same place with a person. What does that mean? If you have Christ in you, he's going with you. You're in the same place. You're walking with him, he's walking with you. You're stepping with him, he's stepping with you. Understand what he's saying here. Being risen means we're in the same place with Christ. If you be risen with Christ, okay, seek those things which are above, Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. It's saying this, we're connected. There's a coherence. There's an intimacy. I'm in company with the Lord. He's breathed a new life into me. And I'm resembling him. I'm in union with him. We're together. We have an association. We have a companionship. And there's a process going on where I'm receiving his light every day to inspire other people. That's what this is all about. It's not about us. It's not about your story. It's about God's story in your life. And people want to make this their story. It's not your story. It's not my story. It's God's story in my life. It's God's story in your life. And we we tell other people God's story in our life. That's what attracts people to Christ. When we try to highfalutin 
and make ourselves look like who I am, we lose people. Because they get intimidated. They feel inferior to begin with. And you're pushing this stuff on them like you're somebody. And they're saying, wow, I can't measure up to that. Because they feel bad about themselves to begin with because they don't have the light of God. If you be risen with Christ, he says, seek what? Those things which are above. So many people are seeking those things on the earth. It's not making them happy. If you ask people, what would make you happy? Well, if I had more money, if I had that car, if I had those shoes, really. You're like a kid on Christmas. Give a kid a bunch of presents. Two days later, they're in a corner somewhere. You can repackage them next year, give them the same present, he wouldn't even know. He loses interest. The veneer wears off. The flavor wears off. And that's what happens in our homes. It happens in our marriages. It happens in our relationships because the light wears off. The veneer wears off. And then we get... We look at the tree. We see what's available. And someone comes along and flatters us, makes us think that we're somebody. And before you know it, we're putty in the hands of the devil. We're putty. Because we're not that strong without Christ. And without the light, we start to walk in darkness. And it's so easy to leave the light out, to shut the light off, and walk in that darkness. Listen to what God is saying. Watch out for the things that block the reflection of God in our lives. What are the blockers? Watch out for the things that block the reflection of God in our lives. These are what I call spiritual eclipses. Darkness. Spiritual eclipses. And you know what? Sometimes they happen suddenly. And you don't even know it. How many times have I heard people in counseling say, why did I do that? Chaplain, why did I do that? Because you blocked out the lights, huh? You forgot where you came from. You forgot God in your life. How many times did I tell these guys, go find a church when you leave? Bad guys call me on the phone. Pastor, you can't believe what's happened to me. I remember a guy specifically. His wife, his, her mother, and his children, he, he was so miserable that they left him and they moved to Florida. And I was able to facilitate communication between him and his family because he gave his life to the Lord in the church. And I said, be patient and we'll pray. And I said, we'll pray for a miracle. And I said, I want to tell you what the miracle is going to be. They're going to come back home. Oh, pastor. I said, they're going to come home. Trust me. But you got to trust God. And when we pray, you have to believe. And through a series of letters and some phone calls, guess what happened? He got out. God gave him a job. God gave him a home. He bought a pair of shoes that he was so proud of that he said, I don't know if I ever bought my own pair of shoes with legal money. Gave him everything. Went to church, found a church. His family came back from Florida to live. They were together. They were going to church. And then what happened? 
Jeff, a couple of months later, he's sitting in my office next to my desk, and I said, son, can you tell me what happened? Just like you said, Pastor, I stopped going to church. I lost my family. I lost my house. I lost my job. And here I'm sitting talking to you again. Why did I do that, Pastor? I said, son, you blocked out God. You took his light for granted. He blessed you, man, out of your socks. You, 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 did you ever think and believe that that miracle would take place? You didn't even believe when we prayed. But they came back from Florida to live with you in Rochester in a house that God gave you and a job. And now you're sitting here for 90 more days. And where's your family, son? They're gone. Probably gone for good, Pastor. I blew it. How many, how many times did I, I sat with a guy next to me who had a good girl? Not one of these, you know, I want excitement girls. Some down-to-earth girl. Sat in my office crying with a Dear John letter. They used to make me read them. And I would tell them, I would say, you're done. Or I could read the letter and say, there's hope. And I would show them where. But I knew when it was done. What did they say? The best thing that came into my life. I lost it. How did I do that, Pastor? How did you do it? You stopped going to church, son. You stopped going to church. You stopped believing in God. You started hanging around the street corners again. To do what? To smoke with a bunch of guys that go nowhere and will never go anywhere because they don't want to go anywhere? And they hooked you. Hooked you. Come on, man. You've been cooped up for 90 days. Come on, man. That's a part. Let's go have some fun. Now you're sitting here again talking to me. I wish you weren't talking to me. I wish you were home with your girlfriend. But you're not going to see her again because she's done with you. You're done. They cry. Grown men cry in my office with the door closed. Bringing me the Dear John letter. It didn't have to be that way. So what's God saying here? And I, I'm, I'm going to quit. What is a spiritual eclipse? What is an eclipse? It's something that hides. It's something that conceals. Something that obscures or covers. Something that darkens. It's hurts. It's rejections. It's injustices. It's substitute behavior we use for attention and affirmation. And that's the excuse that people give. Do you know why I'm the way I am? Because so-and-so rejected me. Someone doesn't love me. Okay. Is that the end of life? Do I have to worry that you're going to go on the ledge and kill yourself? What are you saying? So you allow that to become your spiritual eclipse in your life to block out the light of God. Not necessary. What's God saying? I'll finish with this. Colossians 3.1. We'll, we'll follow up next week with the second part. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life in the easy translation with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. And we have to ask ourselves, are we pursuing those things that God's pleased with? Because here's what I believe the Lord is saying to us in the last day. He's forming a church. He's forming a remnant church. 
He's forming a church that he wants to breathe into. Not just like any church, not an organization, but an organism. The body of Christ is a living organism. And he wants to breathe into that organism. He wants to breathe life into it. And he's gathering. Like he said to Ezekiel, I'm looking for someone to stand in the gap. He's looking for a church. And he's going to find a church. Because there's going to be a raptured church. He's going to find a bride. That's what he's looking for. He's going to find a bride. Not a pose. Not a make-believe. Not a fake. But a real bride. Because he wants to consummate this marriage in the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. That's what this is all about. It's about getting to the other side. It's about being with him. It's reflecting his light. And I want to be part of that. I want you to be part of that. We need to be part of that. We need to be part of that remnant church. And listen, how many times have we said in this church, all of us, we're blessed to know the presence of Almighty God. To feel his presence. Listen, you can go to a lot of other churches. And I'm not saying that we're the only church. But most churches are dead. They're dead as a doornail. It's just a form and a fashion. And thank God that we have liberty here. We have an open altar. Some people like are amazed. Like, you have an open altar? You're like, you don't have like specific people that only could pray for this person? No. It's an open altar. It's an open classroom of learning the Lord Jesus Christ and learning to use our gifts and talents before the Lord and for each other. It's open. It's not a closed classroom. And some people who have come here have been amazed, like, wow, I could go to the altar, I could pray, I could cry, I could, I could laugh. Yeah. No one's going to make fun of you because this is a garden that God wants to be secure so that we could be serene and peaceful and have quiet and rest and recreation. And have fun in worshiping God. When you try to explain that we have fun worshiping God, they think we're nuts. They think you've lost your mind. Because they like ritual. You know, get up, kneel up, up, one time, 10,000 times in, in, a, in a, one, a 40 minute service. Well, what, what is that about? What did you get out of that? But, but exercise and swollen knees if you get too old. Think about it. You know what I'm saying? And your back hurts. Here's what God's saying. I want to teach you about self-image. I want you to have my self-image and my self-esteem. Who you are is who you are in Christ. That's most, most important. That's your credentials. Born again. Baptized in the Holy Spirit on your way to heaven. That's who we are. When Paul came to Christ on the Damascus Road as Saul of Tarsus, he had identity issues. And he gave his resume I'm a Pharisee. I, I've sat at the feet of this one and blah, blah, blah. And I'm on the Sanhedrin court. And he lost all that. He says, I die daily. He says, I'm a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that mesmerized people. That, that got people like flipped out. Like, what are you saying? You're a slave to Christ? Look who you are. You can go anywhere, Paul. You, you could be the head of the Bible school, the Sanhedrin school. The Jewish rabbinical school. Paul said, nah, not for me. Not for me. Did you read that article that I put up by David Wilkerson concerning success today? Interesting article. He puts us into obscurity at times, many times, for a reason. To teach us what success is in Christ. Read the article. 
It's not just there just to post something. It's influential. It's inspiring of what God is saying. And I believe in the last day, he's taking the obscure people, the outcasts. You know, we're not out in the limelight. We're not part of the platform of the mega churches. We're not part of the big whatevers. And God is saying, let me gather some of these that consider themselves outcasts by the world or the religious world, and I'll gather them up. I think it's in Jeremiah 30 and 17. He says, I'll restore your health. And then he says, and I will call you in as the outcasts of Israel. Why? Because he loves us. He's gathering. He's gathering a church and he's gathering his people. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the word tonight. We'll continue next week with part two. We appreciate, Lord, being born again, having your light, being born again in your likeness and in your image. And Father, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives and what you will do. We thank you for that day when we'll see you personally. We'll be transported out of this world into the next as a bride of Christ to sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb to consummate this spiritual marriage between us and you. Father, thank you for the word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening.